Hello and welcome to the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. I have had quite a relaxing day off today, unlike some uh, recording this. Ian looks stressed out of his mind, although admittedly he always does look like that. Uh, some of us have been living up in the highlights of the Christmas market down in York, or up in York. Is it down, up? Up. Uh- some Is of it? us have been doing two people's jobs and clevering at that such other person said clients who are not the most enjoyable to deal with. But um, <laughs> yeah, you've had a, a, a good day. What, tell, you can tell me some go- shit about ghosts, aren't you? That you tell yeah, me, so, I, I need some explanation. So I've, I sent Ian a message earlier today because of there is a shop in york that i'd never heard of before uh, i went with my missus to york christmas markets we don't tend to do the christmas markets that much per year because they're overpriced nonsense more often than not uh so we went to york this year and as we're walking down the shambles which anyone who knows york will know that the shambles is quite a famous street i think it's quite well known throughout the country to be honest i don't know if it's known internationally or anything like that but it's the really sort of small street in it it's not like anything appetizing about it. it's not one of those that you think you know what i really want to go see it but for whatever reason people do and the it's got story loads better of... get better because this has not been a good start <laughs> i'm just explaining what the shambles are to people this is people a slow might... start to a good story if it's gonna yeah, get good people might be thinking what's he on about here what, what's the yeah, shambles so hurry the fuck up and get to the point because <laughs> it's not been a good start so we're walking down and there's loads of people who are talking about tiktok and they're saying oh that's that place that's really famous and i'm like what they're talking about and there's this massive queue that's queuing from about the middle of the street in the shambles all the way around the corner so i asked my missus and i said what's this queue for what what why are people queuing up is it the harry potter store that i've heard of and she goes no it's for something called the york ghost merchants and i'm like oh is it like a a ghost tour um do they give you some stories etc she's like no they just sell ghosts so i'm like what so anyway so we go and do his own thing. I thought, I'm not queuing in that. Not a chance whatsoever. I, I've got more principles than to queue in York for something that I've never heard of for two hours. I ring my mum up because it's getting close to Christmas. I think, oh, well, you know, do you want to? Uh, you want me to get any gifts while I'm here? There's quite a few little stalls, anything independent, etc. cetera. Uh, if you haven't got anyone, some gin. She goes, oh, well, your sister really wants a ghost. And I'm like, Sorry? She's like, oh, yeah, um, she really wants a ghost to get in. And I'm like, what What does that mean? So I turn to Meg and I say, Meg, what, what's she talking about? And she says, it's that shop that we walked past with the one that's got a massive queue on. So I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. So I ask specifically what ghost she wants. Don't know, just wants a ghost. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. The idea of queuing up for this shop and going and saying, can I have a ghost? So anyway, so we get in this queue. And like I said, the queue is two and a bit hours long. We queue all the way to the front. Um, it's quite cold. Starts raining halfway through. We're getting really impatient. We're walking past fudge shops, um, which had some fudge that didn't look appetizing whatsoever. It was brown with little bits in. And yeah, let's not go into that. There were a pie shop going next to us. There were some real ales, all this cool stuff. We finally get into this shop. I'm not kidding when I say it. the shop must be about five meters. Uh, wide and five meters in length if that it is absolutely tiny and all they've got is these little ceramic three four centimeter ghosts and that's it and it's just like a little carving it's smooth it's got two eye holes punched out of it it's not really got any detail 
but it's made out of British material, is what they call it. And they're selling them for £19 each for the standard ones. For the special edition ones, which you're only allowed to buy one of per person, they're about 60-odd quid. And then there's a little Christmas one that's a really small version that was just shy of 12, just over 20 quid with a little uh, ribbon on the top so you can hang it on your Christmas tree. So we bought a few of them, come out, and immediately look on eBay to see how much they go for because Meg's saying, oh, yeah, they're really rare. People are selling them for £200. Now, I'm at the point where I'm thinking, I ain't giving these back to anyone. I'm not giving them to my mum for my sister. I'm going to bang them all on eBay and make an absolute killing just before Christmas and just keep the profits. I'll get you a Gucci bag instead. I, literally, madness. Well, that's five minutes of my life I never get back from probably You asked the me. You literally asked stories. me the story. Uh, well, I think there's a simple answer. One, we learn in that story that you've got zero morals because you go, I'm too good to queue for two hours. Two seconds later, you're queuing for two hours. So that shows you've got zero integrity. Different principles, and just completely not, folded. No just ridiculous point to make. Like, I'm not going to do it, but I will do it. Um, if your mum tells you what to do, you've got to do it. If you're a child, not us grown-ups, it doesn't work like that. Uh, only 29. Uh, equally, if you can make a killing on these and you bought them for like 20 quid each, f- fuck your family. They don't tell your mum you didn't, could, oh, sorry, mum, queue was too big, couldn't get in. We parking, ran out. So we had to leave the queue and slog, slog them for 200 quid each. We, that's I, not even a choice. I mean... I have them types of morals where I can't sack off Christmas presents for it. But I'll be honest, it did cross my mind. And seeing them that they were going for that much, I was just like, why? And apparently it's all because you can't buy them online. It's one of these things where people have seen them on TikTok and viral videos and thought, oh, I really want one of these, but it's I can't just buy getting them. a four centimetre ceramic piece of shit for, for 17 quid. You yep. could sell it for 200 you could buy her a very nice gift for £50, which is nearly three times what you were going to pay, and pocket 150 quid. But Where's it's not a ghost, is it? But apparently, every ghost that you buy has its own little spirit in it. So and not being funny, do you not buy. think she's going to get this ghost and be like, oh, right, Blog thanks, Daryl. Two days later, it was on eBay for 200 quid, and she's like, fucking mug. The best thing, <laughs> it's not even coming from me as this ghost, so I'm giving it to my mum for her to give to my sister as a present. Getting so she's going to take off credit for it. You're getting completely and utterly mugged off here. Just I tell did her get you didn't get the ghost. With Baileys, though, so it made up for it in the end. Um, always, always happy to partake in a Baileys. Um, I've just ranted for six Mark minutes. Mark it down. Episode sixty-four, shittest start to a podcast <laughs> in sixty-four episodes. Well, it's only going to get better because you get to talk about one of the most exciting fight nights we've seen in a long period of time. Fight Night Vegas 82, um, as always with uh, the the fight nights and um, they're never the greatest cards. So it was a bit the of a tone of one. your voice. The tone of your voice literally just went from ha 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 and take it piss out Daryl to Fight Night Vegas. Oh, I've got to talk about it then. It's, it's just I feel like it's got it's, 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 it's not it's not the kind of event that gets us in that excitable childish manner like we were talking about before Aspen or on board before Poetang was it you know that even talking after it like you like it overwhelms me people know how excited I get this was not one of those cards that I got excited about um I've got three fights just to quickly run through only because you said last week I don't disagree by the way with um 
Benoit Saint-Denis up there with the best nicknames in uh, MMA with, uh, with the God of War. One came up uh, on the third fight on the card. You had Chase the Dream Hooper, like that one. <laughs> nice one, isn't it? That, like that. Um, beat a guy called Jordan Livett. First round rear naked choke. Um, really, really nice bit of jiu-jitsu uh, from, from Chase. Uh, the other guy was looking to put uh, an ankle lock on. Uh, looked, I wouldn't say in deep trouble, but looked concerned. All of a sudden, a lovely little transition, switches to his back, bam, puts the choke in, tight as fuck over in the uh, over in the first round. And um, if you don't remember him, I think he came from Dana White series chase, but he's a really young lad. I mean, he's been in the UFC for probably three or four years and he's only 24. So he came in looking like a string bean um, because obviously just, you know, young kid hasn't remotely filled into his body. But he's 24 now, starting to fill out a bit. This was his first fight at a, a higher weight because he's filling out a bit. But um, definitely got some potential. Um, second fight was uh, Jake Matthews versus uh, Michael Morales at welterweight. Morales is undefeated with a record of 15-0. and And he's only the second other Ecuadorian in the UFC. Uh, can you name me the other? Um I probably should be able to, but I can't. Is it a female fighter? Uh, it's a male fighting for the title in his next fight. Uh, Cheetah? Correct. Cheeto is Ecuadorian, so um, well played. Uh, but Morales is only 24, so another young lad. Very, very rangy and tall for welterweight. You could see if he if he puts his, his, his game together, he could be a problem for Pitt, for someone, something like, you know, further down the line because he's very, very long. I think he had something like a 79 inch reach which was something like 10 in 10 or 8 inches bigger than than Matthews uh and in the fight it was really really obvious um Morales was three rounder Morales staying on the outside the only time Matthews looked any chance of getting sort of a chance off was a couple of times he got in close beat through that jab and uh, was able to unleash a few combos but um, Morales was excellent at keeping him out on the outside. So it was a 10-9 for me in round one. Round two, Morales comes out, starts throwing some heat, pins him against the cage and is unleashing on him. Um, very good footwork from Matthews to, to get out, sort of fakes one way, then dances out the other way to sort of get, escape out. But he took some pretty big hits, uh, which showed an impressive chin. And then they pulled up uh, a stat that um, with two minutes left in the round, it was 17 to one into Morales in terms of leg kicks. So Close, then. we've talked about it before, or certainly I have that, that decimating impact of leg kicks have on your movement and how you can work. 17 you've taken and you've dished out one. That is going to seriously compromise your movement. Um, so anyway, gave that. Also 10-9 to, to Morales. Round three, both starting to get a little bit um, uh, tired. I think there was actually two dick strikes, one each. So two inadvertent cocks, cock uh, kick, kicks where it brushed off the thigh and up into the crotch, one on each other. So it's sort of both in the same round, but uh, they weren't too brutal, so they didn't need the full five minutes to recover. But again, that jab from from Morales and keeping Matthews on the outside um, was very useful. 10-9 Morales for me. So I had it 30-27 Morales. 
um, in terms of the judges. One judge had it, shared the same view as me, 30-27. The other two judges gave it 29-28. But uh, Morales, that puts him up to 4-0 and zero in the UFC and um, someone to keep an eye on. Yeah, I suppose. Um, it's early on, you know. And again, yeah, I'm going to say. But he looked like he had everything. He, he, he grappled very well. His, his striking was better. You know, 24, some of the progress. I mean, you look at someone like Volk. The, the improvement and the, the progression from his first fights in the UFC to where he is now, almost every fight you saw him get better. And if you can get someone at something like 24 to take that level of every, every day, they're just doing something slightly better in each fight, they get better and better. He would definitely have a very high ceiling on him. I'd say Morales, I was very impressed. This is against Jake Matthews though, who is, um, Try to think of a way to say this with the utmost respect. He isn't the biggest of challenges. He's very hit and miss in his last few fights. I think this is. I mean, he can throw bombs and he's got a chin, but yeah, they're working him up. You know, he's only he's only his fourth fight in the UFC. So, you know, I'm not talking about him fighting anywhere near the title for the you know in the significant future. But three, four, you know, more wins down the line, um, you could be something saying something quite different depending how he's paired up. He definitely needs to keep active. I know that he had two fights last year and this was his second fight of this year wasn't it but yeah we'll see what's come to him in 2024 and then you had the main event which was uh in the middleweight so you had brendan allen number 10 in the rankings and uh with a record of 22 and 5 versus paul craig who was 13 in the rankings uh scotland zone with a record of 17 6 and 1 um, both of them come from absolutely superb uh, black belt backgrounds to very, very high level grapplers. So um, any money, if there was, I didn't have a bet, uh, I'll be honest, but if there was any money that was going to be going on this one, it was going to be that someone was getting tapped. Um, this is Craig's second fight at middleweight since he's moved down from the light heavyweight. And he's actually got the um, second most submissions in UFC light uh, light heavyweight history, which is quite a good stat. Uh, can you name me the number one? I should be able to, but I don't. I, I can't. Glover Teixeira. Oh, Glover Teixeira at seven, seven subs. Um, Craig has six. But Craig does also, very impressively here, hold the UFC for the most triangle submissions with four. So... Uh, that shows you the kind of level of um, the, the calibre they are. And uh, a nice little stat for you. So you've got Jamal Hill, who everybody thinks is a bit of a monster at the moment. And obviously he's injured on the sidelines, waiting for his, his fight and a chance against Poetang and how good he's looked. Craig beat him uh, a couple of years back and actually got his back belt, black belt from his trainer when he uh, subbed him. So um two six three, wasn't it? Um uh, we were at a and and Vittori too, that event. If I don't know if this is just a coincidence in terms of camps or whether there's a bit of malice in that, but what they also said in commentary, Jamal Hill was in Brendan Allen's corner. So um quite a nice little touch. But um they come out and I mean I like Craig. Craig is, is probably well, probably quite easily, I would say, Scotland's best UFC fighter. And um Comes out, he looks quite, sort of quite stoic. Uh, nicknamed the Bear Jew, 
Uh, I can only assume that he's stolen that from Inglorious Bastards, but uh, otherwise it's a weird nickname to have. But um, uh, comes out, no touch of gloves. Looks fucking stoic as fuck. Like, you know, Robert the Bruce nut. I'm not fucking touching gloves. Um, comes out quite quickly, gets Allen in a really bad position in a, in a not often seen uh, submission called a calf slicer, which is a pretty bad one. And it's kind of a, a leg lock that the pressure is then on, on your thigh to make you tap. Um, Alan actually, because he's saying incredibly savvy black belt, attacked the ankle of Craig, which is probably his only way realistically to get out and got out. And it was again for maybe for the average person, not that impressive, but it was in a super high level grappling exchange. Really good to watch from both men, the actual attack and the way that uh, Alan dealt with it and got out. It, that was, you know, really pretty impressive. Um, Alan then manages to switch it and get on top and does a bit of a round steal for me. Starts hitting him with probably 20 seconds to go. But obviously the enduring image in the judges is him on top, raining blows down at the uh, end of the bell. So I gave that 10-9 Allen. Um, round two, right at the start, there's almost a double KO. One of those freak things where they both come out and they both land a, bo- a punch at exactly the same time. Uh, both kind of look wobbled for a second and, and really stung. Craig uses this to sort of grab him and take him down into his his guard, uh, and which is pretty nasty. And uh, Alan uh, straight away just goes down. So clearly not that scared. Obviously very confident in his own jiu-jitsu ability that, and, and not many people are prepared to go into Paul's guard. Alan tries to get him with an arm choke uh, or an arm in choke, um, but Craig manages to get out. And then there's some big elbows on the bottom from Alan uh, and some good ground control. So... Another 10, 9, uh, 8 for me in round three, uh, round three. Big body shot and a head uh, and a head shot and Craig goes down. Um, Alan uses this to slap on uh, a guillotine. Um, Craig does very well, to be honest, to get out of it. But by getting out of it, he gives his back up. Bang. Alan's behind him. Rear naked choke. Over. And... Um, you know, someone as high level as Paul Craig getting subbed is uh, definitely a feather in your cap. I mean, it's interesting to see what happens with Brendan Allen next. And obviously we can come on to that in terms of moving forward in middleweight. He's on obviously quite a good streak at this point in time. Uh, Paul Craig, just very quickly, and a note on Paul Craig. The first time that I was introduced with by well, to Paul Craig, I think it was by you, funnily enough. I think I was putting a bet on... Trying to remember what event it will have been. I think it was definitely a fight night, and I want to say it was Volkov and Aspinall, and I think it was at the start of 2022, and I'm pretty sure it was against Krylov, uh, Nikita Krylov, that he had a fight with, and he took him out with a triangle choke, funnily enough, because you mentioned it earlier. I think I had him on like uh, an accumulator, and one of those were was for him to, to choke someone out and win by submission. And then since then, I thought, right, I'm going to put every single... Paul Craig fight that C for him to win by submission. Since he won by submission in 2022 of March, he hasn't won a single fight by submission now. So obviously we're nearly two years on since then. The only fight he won was the fight night, uh, again, funnily enough, Aspinall and Tibera this time. And it was because he won by uh, elbows, I think it was. So it's not really worked out for me in terms of money. Yeah, I think so lost he's like hundred quid. Yeah, I like lost hundred quid betting on him since then. But I made hundred quid in the first fight, so it's evened itself out. Um, 
But I just get the feeling that Paul Craig, at his age, uh, he seems to be winding down on his career a little bit. I know he's, he's stepped up to middleweight. But stepped down. Stepped step like down, heavyweight. sorry, to middleweight. Um, but I really don't see where he goes from here. I can see him being put on... He's going to be a middle of. Stuff, he's going to be but, like a you know the gatekeeper type, isn't he? He's going to be fighting uh, those people around those levels, the tent, you know, the up and comers. That it's a name for their resumes. One of those that will get set up for those, you know, fighting around the the top fifteen. I mean, he's not much better than that, if you ask me. Anyway, really, as you say, very very good off his back. He doesn't really have a great deal else in his locker, particularly. Um, and I think back to your point about you putting him on to win by sub. Um, I think you saw, I saw something like, um, I know he hasn't, um, he, he's won a few times, but in, in other ways, I, I think one of the stats they showed up is that his last six wins, he's been the underdog. So if rather than oh, necessarily right. putting him by uh, to tap, if you just put him on to win, you would be uh, certainly quids him. I mean, would I, if he's... Lost three of his last four now. No, it's, it's six wins before that. Because I think he was on a six-fight win streak. So sorry, before the the ones there before before that. So that's what I'm saying. You missed it a while back, but he, he went uh, on a little okay. bit of a streak. And I think in all six of those victories, he was the underdog. I mean, going back to Allen then. So Brendan Allen, I think he's is his submission streak one of the longest. At this moment in time, in terms of active fighters in the company, it was four, four or five, four or five, yeah. Um, but he, as you say, top notch and, and doesn't look it to be honest with you. I mean, he's quite a specimen, he's quite an athletic guy. Stand up looks like it's all right. He's not what I would call the average looking jiu jitsu black belt and, and, and superb grappler, but yeah, apparently the kid is super talented on the map. Um, and as you say, tapping, tapping Paul Craig is, um, especially by a rear naked choke. Do you know what I mean? It's the oldest fucking trick in the book. Um, so to be able to, to to be wily enough to get him into that position that you can slap a rear naked choke on him, absolutely impressive. Do you know who holds the longest overall uh, submission streak in UFC history? You should know this as well. Charles Oliveira. Royce Gracie. Fucking Six. hell. Took, like, that's like within the, that was the first two UFCs. Well, I mean, it's uh, he's got six. literally no, uh, literally number one and two, and he won three in both. So by all by submission, I think. But, so that going back to the old school, yeah. Which obviously you were there for for when it were uh, first created the UFC. So um, moving on, then I have a few bits and pieces to run through with you, and I checked obviously before we did this episode just to make sure that this was this was fresh to you as well. Uh, Big Colby has come out and trashed Leon Edwards um, quite heavily, as you would expect. Obviously, the build-up to their fight is is started, so UFC 296, which is December the 16th, I believe. So we're starting to get into that position where he's trying to build up all the hype, as he usually does, etc., etc. Colby says that um, Leon Edwards didn't earn his title the hard way uh, like he did. Uh, He didn't earn it the hard way like he did. And he basically says that no one gave him the spot for uh, a title fight and for the undisputed fight, a title fight. He had to earn it. He had to go to an unconventional way because the company wasn't putting everything on a plate for him. However, he says that Edwards basically had it handed to him. Before I go into the stats, opinions on that? 
I mean, we know what Colby's like, but... Well, it's absolute nonsense because I'm pretty sure <laughs> Kobe hasn't ever held the title anyway. He might have held the interim, didn't he, at some point because of an injury. But he's definitely never been champion, I'm pretty sure. Two, he's... the fact that he's trying to suggest Edwards was giving it the hard way, or sorry, the easy way, when he head kicked into another dimension, someone that were people were talking about could be the greatest world away ever and was on, what, a 15-fight win streak? That's not, getting handed, that's not getting handed shit. What on earth is he talking about? Well, I've had a look at their both their fights while they've been ranked well weights. So I'm just looking back through. Um, there are some names that most people won't know. Look at Covington's first. Uh, so obviously beat Dos Anjos. Uh, he beat Robbie Lawler. Lost then to Usman when he got his chance. Then beat Woodley. Lost again to Usman when he got another chance and then beat Masvidal most recently. Uh, Edwards, you look at his, uh, it's in the same comparison. Gunnar Nelson, who was ranked 13, beat him. Dos Anjos, who was ranked fourth, beat him. Uh, Bilal, obviously that didn't happen. That would have been quite an interesting fight in terms of um, a rematch. Obviously it was a no contest in the end. I still think there's unfinished business there if Edwards does win this fight. Uh, Nate Diaz, which appreciate it's obviously in the last stage of his career, but it's still Nate Diaz. Uh, Usman beats him, head kicks him into oblivion, like you say. Usman, again, beats him quite comfortably as well. So I, I completely agree. I don't think he's been handed anything. And I, it's already at the stage where I'm hoping that Edwards finishes Colby. I don't want him to just beat him. I want him to finish him. Just take the crap, take the crap pipe away from Colvington for a start, but you know you're going to get that type of shit. The best thing anyone can do against somebody who's like that, like Connor, is just not engage because you get sucked in emotionally, physically to arguing back, answering the mind shit. games. Isn't it? It's an attempted version, but and you get certain people who are far better at it. Like Connor has this wit and style to it that kind of you're forced to engage with because it's funny. So you like when you're just getting outright like. Fuck you, man. Fuck this shit. If I, I would Edwards, I would just tune it out. I'd literally be like, right, delete his Twitter uh, so he can't see what he says. Say something to his camp. Like, look, do no one brings in any of the shit that he says. Like, I just want to not even engage because what's one of the most frustrating things in the world is when you're there trying to poke the bear and fucking cause mayhem and they're just, they're just ignoring you. That, that would backfire mentally in terms of the warfare on Colvington because he's the type of attention whore that needs something back. So the best thing Liam can do is not bite, just carry on with his training and just literally ignore it, if you ask me. Just because you mentioned McGregor and, and his trash talking. You remember that time, I don't know why it's just popped in my head, but you remember that time where he farted on Aldo? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's probably the sec- most second hilarious <laughs> McGregor bit ever, I would personally say, is that. The second one was when he was on the live interview with after Aldo, the first type fight pulled out. They put a late replacement in, didn't they? Which was Chad Mendes. And they had, I think, like McGregor on, say, Hawani show. And they had a live broadcast on the TV with with um, uh, Mendes. And Mendes said something about like someone said, but would your height be a difference? And he's like, my height can be an advantage because I'm smaller. I can get into taking down. He's never fought a wrestler. And McGregor just said something like, 
you're so small I could put my balls on your forehead <laughs> just 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 completely ruined like do you know what I mean like on tv like that just like do you know what I mean? again like that that's funny shit but like just said it like that not, not it just said it just so naturally like look you're so small I just put my balls on your forehead and just menders you know you could see like someone's just got shut down everyone in the studio is cracking up like you're like he, he actually had to laugh and be like probably to save it to be like do you know what all right that was pretty good but like everyone's like cracking up presenters in fucking stitches but like you don't get like not being funny colvington doesn't say funny or witty things like that does he, he says provocative yeah aiming to get a reaction and as you say the best way to do that is to not give someone a reaction from a side psychological warfare which I like to think, given a lot of the books I tell you to read, I am pretty well versed in. That is the perfect way to play someone like Colvington is literally completely disengage. Don't even give him a response because that would just get him angrier and angrier and send him more and more. And then his energy is getting consumed on that rather than focusing on the fight of his life. Brendan Sharp has been making some comments with regards to what people have coined an interesting UFC 300 theory. So obviously 300 is due to take place what we think is April next year. Um, has a date been confirmed for it as of yet? Um, no, but it's not even been confirmed the, the month. But they're, they're in terms of how it lines up, I think numbered-wise, they're saying April. Uh, I think, again, they I think ideally it is would have tried to push it to like, july or something like that when it was fight week but they're not going to be able to so yeah april has been very strongly mooted well because they, they spoke about and this is still on topic but slightly off topic in terms of what brenda sharp said because they've spoken about mcgregor and chandler should be on the card but then dana white came out didn't he and he said that his return mcgregor's return is more likely to take place in summer of 2024 and if that's the case that'll be um, far too late for UFC 300. So I get the feeling that they'll push that so it fits in line perfectly. But obviously we've had Sean O'Malley, for example, who's already booked out for events before. Um, Volk maybe is, is uh, booked out for an event, not leaving enough time to prepare for another fight if he's to beat Tapura. So it's one of these where a lot of people are con- conversing with regards to who can be on the card, who should be on the card, blah, blah, blah. Brennan Sharp has said he thinks that McGregor Chandler will definitely take place on UFC 300. That's not his interesting theory. His interesting theory is that GSP is going to come out of retirement and fight Nick Diaz. It's not really got any context to it. It's like I think Nick Diaz is scheduled to um, do something that was supposed to be within the last month or the upcoming month. And he's pulled out of that because he wants to avoid injury. And that's the theory. And then is GSP I mean, going to find uh, it? No, I don't think so. I mean, GSP is definitely still a big enough name and a draw that, that people would want to see that because of who he is. But, I mean, it must be four or five years he's had off since he beat came back for the one-off fight to beat Bisping for the middleweight title to make him a two-weight champ. And although I know he keeps himself in superb shape, you know, an absolute athlete, big proponent of stuff like gymnastics and calisthenics that keep him, you know, his whole, he can do, you know, that, you never see those rings where they hold on to him like that. Like he can do that shit for like two minutes. Or insanely strong from the workouts that he does. But the people really want to see that over McGregor Chandler, which I know we're not saying is, you know, is a possibility. 
there's loads of other bigger fights they could make personally that would draw people back. And ultimately, if you if you're looking at it from that perspective of let's go for if we haven't got McGregor or Jones or the stars to pull it back, let's see if we can come up with some older stars to fill it for that purpose. Brock would be the number one choice by a mile. And Rousey would. They've already shot down Rousey. And I'm pretty sure Brock, Brock has said, no, I'm not going to do it because I'm carrying on wrestling. I don't see the clamour, if I'm honest with you. I don't think people would be excited to pay to see if G, GSP come back. I don't know. He's still a big name. Uh, Lesnar, I agree with. But I think... I'm not entirely sure if he is still wrestling. I don't know if he's out of action. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he hasn't. Not that game just passed him by again, though. He's a physical, you know, freak. And if he'd been training since he was 21, he'd be unstoppable. But he's got older. He could only really wrestle anyway. I mean, are you putting him with a game? I mean, Lesnar Aspinall. Ah, it wouldn't last a minute. But it'd be brilliant to watch for an English point of view. Yeah, I'd love to see him fuck him up, but that's like just that's different worlds. That that again, levels of shit. Like you can't. That's yeah. Lesnar has no right to even get in the ring with Aspinall. That would be that would be that would be end disastrously with a lot of blood uh, uh, brain cells lost by Lesnar if that fight happened. Of his three that are remaining, Um, I've just checked, and you're right. GSP's last fight was UFC 217, so it was 2017, funnily enough. So he hasn't fought in six years. By the time before that, he hadn't fought in four years. Yeah, he's had like one fight in ten years. And obviously, we've got another four or five months before we get to UFC 300 potentially. So plus, plus, if you think about it, and what we're talking about, unless we know uh, a point on that that again would shoot that down on both fighters' fronts, would be um, we know the whole. Well, I suppose potentially, technically not. We know the whole thing with Usada, the whole thing with Usada, and that is carrying on for a certain period of time while the contract ends. You have to be in the testing pool for six months. I've certainly not read anything, and I usually, you know, like you say, sort of keep my ear to the ground with these things. There's been talk about McGregor being back in it. He's been piss tested twice already. It's nothing about GSP or Diaz back in the testing pool. And if you have to be in for six months before a fight, and that's in April, unless they're already in, then that's out as well. So well, that don't sounds forget like the, bullshit to me. Don't forget that partnership ends with the UFC on the 1st of January. Is it the 1st of January end? But yeah, so the new company they've taken on have effectively said that they will follow basically the same protocols. So it ah, shouldn't okay. really change. So uh, it's a different company, but the kind of UFC have said that that's a, a fair enough system that works. So I don't, I, I think that's just complete and utter bollocks, if I'm honest. You call me out often on Never. these sources. Uh, I read this on Twitter, Ian, that's a fucking guy with one follower and talking nonsense. That theory sounds, even though I appreciate you saying it's from Sharp, as Sharp read that from someone with one follower on Twitter, that sounds. I think he's just, it's one of these conspiracy theories. He's probably wearing a tin hat as he's saying. But he should know loads better, man. You know, he's, he's a former fighter. He does the Fighter in the Kid podcast. He speaks to fighters all the time. This is not a moronic twat, you know. I'm, he's not the brightest of sparks by any stretch, but I like Brendan Sharp. And he, apart from someone like Rogan, of the podcast that I listen to anyway, would definitely be the second most person in the know. So it's not come from a, a ridiculous source. It's just what, where is he got that source from, if you know what I mean. But from Brendan Sharp, it has 
a little bit of legitimacy because he's an incredibly well-connected former fighter. Take it up with him. I have a word with him. I'm sure he'll give him, give him more than happy. Yeah, get him on podcast. We'll Brendan, you fucking cunt. What's all this shit about <laughs> 300? Uh, last bit on UFC this week then. Um, Tupura has it all mapped out in terms of his upcoming fights, what he's going to do next, uh, when, and it is a when in his mind, when he beats Volk for the title on February the 17th. He wants to fight Max Holloway in Spain. Uh, he has decided that he's already won this fight against Volk, which amateur mistake for me. Uh, he never looked too far ahead, especially when you're fighting Volkanovski. Uh, he wants to fight Max Holloway in Spain. And then when he beats Max Holloway and when he's holding the UFC title, he's going to go and beat Canelo in a boxing match because he thinks that he has a legitimate chance in taking his titles off him. Uh, Might have been taken somewhat, but... <laughs> um, I mean... I don't think there's anyone at flyweight or lightweight that can beat Volk that's not called Islam. So good luck to Pura on that front in the first basis. I suppose the only point you could say, but he misses a major part of his plan, which is being UFC champion. If he did lose that, and let's say it was a relatively close fight, or he you know, manages to last a fair few rounds with uh, Volk before he gets beaten, there's nothing to stop him having the fight with Holloway then. It just won't be for the title. And would Holloway take on someone who is coming off a loss? But you could argue that even if he loses to Volk, which I'm pretty sure he will, he could still fight Holloway next. But um, what the Canelo thing is like, what? That, I mean, Canelo fights at, what is it, £158? Tapura is at 135 Like, his main aspects are his kicks, which he can't use. Like, this sounds like another man that might have been at the crack pipe. Well, he's seen the MMA greats moving into boxing, hasn't he? So he's seen, obviously, the great of Nganu. He's seen an even better MMA great in Jake Paul go and make all this money in terms of the boxing matches. So he's, he's hungry for it, isn't he? And he's probably been, as you say, a little bit overconfident. I, I think it's all stemming from the fact that Volk got sparked out. And I think he's seen that. He, he claims it hasn't affected his training. He claims it hasn't affected his confidence. But I can guarantee you, he has seen that and thought, I'm going to absolutely have him. And then I'm going to rule the world. Yeah. And to be honest with you, that's the, the thing about, that was the danger for Volk taking that fight when it had already been um, uh, called. And because of the short notice nature of it, you know, um, a bit like we were say, or I said that I thought Usyk was sat there smug as fuck when Fury struggled to his victory in Ngannou. You could tell Tapura was very likely at home thinking exactly the same. Vox just got smashed in three rounds. I've got good kicks. He's got head kicked out. I've got a chance here. So I, I could absolutely see how his confidence and his belief that he could do it would shoot up. But... This is a different Volk. This is full training camp Volk. This is Volk who's going to have been studying tape, knowing what's coming, going to be checking the high kick because that's what Tapura does. So I think I can understand it completely why he's buoyed with confidence after watching that. But he ain't fucking Islam Makachev. So he's not doing that to Volk. For those who regularly listen to the Tapping Up podcast, they'll know that Ian's allegiances lie with the red half of Merseyside. However, um, 
he has shed a tear this week at the announcement of the 10-point Premier League deduction for financial rules breaches uh, that Everton have received. And as I'm saying this, I can see that the look on his face, he's so upset. Can, you would agree, Ian? I, I can barely talk through the tears, Daryl, that <laughs> our greatest rivals have had a 10-point deduction. It's 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 been a wonderful week. Um, and yeah, just a good week. Like, uh, I just, I'm not really like what, what, what's not to like about your, your, your local rivals getting a 10 point deduction. But the sad thing is, is that as we've discussed earlier in the week, that puts them level with Burnley who are on four points. And I still sadly, given the quality of Sheffield United, Luton, uh, and Burnley could see them staying up even with the deduction, sadly. Yeah, I mean, this has all come from, as a quick overview, we won't bore you on this, but essentially English top flight clubs are permitted to lose £105 million over three years. And an independent commission has found that Everton losses for 21, or or to the period of 21-22, amounted to £124.5 million. So this punishment that they've received is the biggest sporting sanction in the Premier League's history. As Ian rightly says, has left them 19th in the table. They, of course, are shocked and disappointed at this outcome. So shocked that, you know, they had no idea that they'd breached the uh, financial rules by this this severity. They obviously just expected to get away with it or a, a lesser sanction. I actually like that the Premier League has been quite hard on this and we'll come on to other more notable teams in, in just a second. But this has been ongoing since, I think, March of this year, where uh, Premier League referred Everton to an independent commission. It didn't reveal the specifics of their alleged breach. They've gone into more detail. They've obviously announced the the judgment, and you can read through it online. It's, it's quite detailed in, in what it explains. But it, there are so many different things that Premier League clubs do these days, and reporting certain losses and any financial rules breach should be punished, in my opinion, and I'm sure Ian will back me up on this. They have basically completely thrown their toys out of the pram, and it's the old adage of, well, 10-point deduction affects the fans. It doesn't affect the football club. It's not fair. We should be able to do whatever we want to do as a football club. You shouldn't affect us in a way that would affect our fans. Ultimately, that's not how it works. That's not how any football club can work, and it's not how any sporting organisation can work. At the end of the day, if you've got a team, whether it be netball, whether it be football, whether it be rugby, if there's any sanction given against said club, it's going to affect the fans first and foremost, in all honesty. If Even if it's just financially, oh, right, we're putting you under a um, transfer ban, transfer embargo, or we're going to reduce what you can spend. We're going to charge you by 50 million this year and you've got to pay it back. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the people that always miss out the most are the fans. I didn't see anyone kicking off when Blackburn, um, or sorry, when, when Middlesbrough failed to fulfil a fixture against Blackburn in 96-97. I didn't see anyone kicking off when Portsmouth were deducted nine points after going into administration. I certainly didn't see anyone kicking off when Leeds were deducted 25 points in the space of two seasons. And in fact, clubs voted to ensure that punishment stayed there. Um, I didn't see anyone kicking off when Luton were deducted 30 points in 2008-2009 season, which caused them to drop out of the Football League entirely. 
And I certainly didn't see anyone kicking off and running to Derby County's aid uh, a couple of seasons ago when they were docked 21 points. So in the nicest possible way, and not to anger any Everton fans, but boo-hoo. If you break the rules, you get the punishment. Yeah, and I mean, I totally agree. The nice thing is that the Premier League have actually taken action for them. But the most interesting point for me, sort of moving on from the Everton point, is, like you say, I think Everton got that for one infraction of financial fair play. If I'm not mistaken, at the last count, and don't, you could, well, might want to quote me because you always love proving me wrong. If I'm not mistaken, aren't Man City charged with something like 110 breaches? I don't know the exact number. I know it's over 100. And they're the only other club that's been charged by the Premier League. So if that, if one point relates to a 10-point deduction, like where does that, I mean, and obviously as a Liverpool fan and, and, and someone that are having a, a season that they could be running for contention, if City will get, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not be silly, that it's not going to translate to one point uh one infraction, 10-point deduction, because that would be City getting like minus a 1,000 and would probably put them like 20 tiers down into the prem, uh, down football. That's not going to happen, is it? But you could quite easily see if the infractions are in the same nature as Everton, why, and they've got that many, why should they not have to forfeit 60, 70, 80 points uh, to risk relegation and be banned from Europe for three or four years or something like that, because 110 times more infractions should mean an incredibly increased punishment, should it not? Well, I mean, this has been discussed quite a lot as well in the, um, the since this has come out, essentially, since all this stuff about Everton has come out and since they've actually been charged, because City were actually charged before Everton. They were charged back in February of this year, and that case is still ongoing. A lot of people have questioned how on earth the conclusion has come for Everton's case earlier when it started later. I'll the call it answer- for you now. Lawyers, Man City will have Betty lawyers who will have tied up the proceedings. I bet you that. There's Sorry that. To interrupt. No, no, that's fine. There's that. But there is also the fact that, as you rightfully said, we're talking, I think it was one or two breaches, or maybe even be one breach um, in terms of Everton. City are looking at well over 100, so it's going to take a longer period of time. That They've obviously got to look at this um, far more in depth. And in fact, I'm just looking here, Everton would defend themselves against a single charge in relation to their spending, so it definitely is a single charge. Man City exactly have 115 to deal with. Um, it says many of which are complex and all of which they deny. So as you can imagine, the legalities on both sides are going to be going against one another. They're going to look to try and get a settlement, of course. But what it does do in terms of the Everton decision is it raises the bar in terms of the punishment. So 10 points is a hefty punishment. And I don't think anyone can argue against that. But I think it's a right punishment if they've done what they've said they've done. But you look at that, and as you say, it's not going to be every point or every breach translates to 10 points because then they're getting... 1,150 points deducted off them, and that would be silly. However, what it does mean is if they have been found guilty of all these different charges, and this has been ongoing since, I believe it's 2008 or 2009, since two, up till 2018, there's a lot of things that have happened in that period of time that have helped Man City become a powerhouse in world football. They're obviously at this moment in time the best team in in 
Europe and arguably the best team in world football, in club uh, football, that is, anywhere. But there is only one punishment that I can see if they get found guilty of this. And this is me speaking without the biasness or without the biased nature of Ian. They've got to be relegated, have they not? Because a, a point deduction of that level means that they're not going to get out of it. There's no real other option that the Premier League has having set this precedent now. Yeah, well, it, it, it's whether it's they get immediately relegated or they get such a sufficient point deduction that that relegates them. The problem would be and if they got like an 80-point deduction, they'd probably still have more points than Luton. <laughs> and everything. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I would say relegation and I would say a mixture of other sanctions as well. They should have a restriction on how much they can spend for the next three seasons or something because they've been breaching it. They should have some kind of wage cap sanction brought in that can limit what their total wage cap is. I mean, they ha- if that means they have to sell Hardened because he's on 800 grand a week or whatever it is, if they have to sell De Bruyne because they can't afford it, tough luck. That's part of the sanction. Um, but I feel like though just the points in itself, not being funny, if they got relegated in your situation, they've still got enough money that they just say to everybody, look, lads, just stay with us. Fucking, we'll be up in a season, back on it. Can you imagine that just Harlan's not going to leave his contract? You know, I reckon you could he'd stay there for one year, score 95 goals in the championship, fire him straight back up by Christmas, and then they're straight back into the Premier League and back to where they are anyway, aren't they? So I, you I don't I think you say this, but I think, and I, I'm of the same mindset, I get the, the feeling that they would say. Oh right, there is uh, financial rules in the EFL as well. Oh well, we're just going to breach those to get us back into the Premier League. You can't do all about it because we're no longer part of the EFL and you can't charge us. It's a different sanctioning body. But people like Harland at their stages of the career, I get the feeling that that's when you get the big boys like real. I mean, obviously we're talking way drastic, and it's a hypothetical situation that probably won't transpire because. Man City bringing a lot of money for the Premier League in viewing figures, in everything else that they do, merchandise, sport in nature, blah, 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 blah. So it's probably not going to be as severe as we're suggesting. But if they did get relegated, I think that they'll lose quite a number of those players. Haaland goes to Madrid, for example. De Bruyne goes someone else in the Premier League because they want Champions League football at the end of the day. And that's what every footballer wants of that level. I feel like there's some, though, that like De Bruyne... For example, if they keep him on his wage, given his age, given his service to City, and when you are basically saying, look, lads, I know it sucks. You're all Champions League calibre players, but give us one season. We'll get straight up clearly if we keep this team together. And the next season, we'll go straight back into the Champions League probably as well. So I feel like probably some of the players at that middle point of the career, like maybe Haaland, you could be right. I think De Bruyne would, would give him that extra year and stay. I think there might be two or three people that might decide, actually, we can't do this. But you've got to be a bit of a twat not to be able to play Champions League just for one season. If they got relegated down more than one one league, for example, that's a different kettle of fish. But I think one season, I don't know if that would make such a difference. Two seasons, because if they go down, they get promoted in one year. They then have to finish in the Champions League spots the following year. Yeah, so sorry, but that's what, yeah, it. but that's what I'd be. They go the, the year they went up, they would pretty much go straight up and be in the top four, wouldn't they? They'd end up if they kept that team together. So yeah, hundred yeah, percent. People two, like yeah, Harland, two yeah, two years is quite a big at his stage of his career as well. Loan um, him out, 
to a two-year <laughs> loan, get a hundred million, and then take him back when you get back in it. Let Let me guess. Would you also want uh, a sanction to be? I don't know. Let's say Haaland has to be sold for four pounds to whoever's currently in second place in the league. I mean, that would be quite a nice sanction. I mean, I feel like they'd be a bit biased and. <laughs> Then a judge is going to be ordering that one, but um, yeah, I definitely take that. But um, I mean, the, sal- the salary cap thing for me though is important because I think when you've let them flout it to the level that they have, just allowing them to effectively pay a fine and carry on doing it, but maybe get a bit more sponsorship in or let a couple of players go just to bring that wage bill out. What does it really teach them? I feel like they need something more than the points deduction that's going to cost them financially to have to look to restructure the club in the finances to make it more compliant with the rules. So if that means they have to sell five of their biggest earners to cut down to that salary cap, then that's what they have to do. Or they have to get those players to reduce wages. Well, you've got Chelsea as well, who are also in the background watching all this with a keen eye because they're facing uh, scrutiny from the authorities or the reports of payments connected to Roman Abramovich. Obviously, he's no longer the owner at uh, this point in time, but if they're also guilty of some of these breaches, they're also going to be shitting themselves. So it's interesting to see, and I think there's a lot of clubs who will be looking at this and worried for their own finances. Because I'll be honest, I don't necessarily... Man just, you. Um, I'd hope yeah, man you I get dragged in. They probably have, though. There's a lot of people. You look at how much debt they're in. There's they a spent lot of 90, 90 million pounds on Anthony. how can that not be in breach of play that that should be a breach of fair play just for how stupid and shit a deal it was but like you're right there are a lot of teams that will should be more worried and man you definitely would be one that you know those accountants will be checking over those books like shit we might have skated pretty close to this 105 mil uh loss we've made over averaged out over the three years just before we move on to continuing to talk about city and obviously your beloved team as well, because there's quite a big game coming up this weekend with the return of the Premier League, finally. I just wanted to point out, have you seen anything about Carragher and his criticism of Newcastle? Uh, no. Okay, so he has come out, um, he's done a an interview in which, I think it were on, sponsored by Skybet, someone who was with Neville, and he'd basically spoken about Tenale, and he had said that, Newcastle hadn't done enough due diligence into Tenali's private life and that they deserve to be punished and shouldn't be allowed to sign someone like Ruben Neves on loan. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk of that happening. Um, some of the Premier League clubs voted against allowing teams that are uh, owners that own other teams to allow their players to come over. It's almost certain that someone like Ruben Neves is going to play for Newcastle and is going to come over in uh, the January transfer window. Obviously, teams voted against it in the end, but he's gone into quite a bit of detail about how it's all Newcastle's fault. They should have looked this further. And one of the things that he tweeted was that clubs never tire of telling us how much they look into the background of potential signings and how much attention into detail goes into it. So if something like this happens, they can't complain if people then question it. I saw a very funny response from a Newcastle fan who replied saying, this makes no sense at all. It's like saying that Sky Sports should have done a full background check on you to find out how likely it was for you to spit on someone on a motorway. That was a Which, good response. Yeah, it got, and, got a laugh uh, out of that for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know why he's commenting, really. What's it got, uh, it's got, what's it got to really do with him? He's a character, isn't he? He has to get his 
beaky nose into everything. He always wanted to talk. He's not about Neville. It. Neville was a bit more beaky, I would say, than than well, Carragher. Yeah, they both do Why even get involved? What's he got to do with him? Fuck knows. But speaking about the main game, then, so City are hosting Liverpool this Saturday, twenty fifth of November, twelve thirty. Um, a lovely di- dinner time kickoff, which I'm sure won't anger you at all. Um, did I say Sunday or Saturday? It's Saturday anyway. Saturday. Yeah, it's definitely Saturday, um, which, again, you're you're enthralled by. Um, it's got a familiar feel about this one, which is strange considering last season and your complete and utter downturn in form. Obviously, this season it's been significantly different. You're back in second only by a single point, I believe. Uh, City obviously had a couple of consecutive defeats. They then got 10 points from the past four. There was that fantastic four-all draw with Chelsea that we talked about uh, last week. And Liverpool have been doing exceptionally well, in all honesty. Um, apart from the, the game against Spurs, which obviously had a lot of controversy behind it. And Luton, and which we won't talk about because, again, um, it's not worth it for you. But they'll obviously be hoping that that's just a blip. It looks like last season was a blip for you which is the important part, and this looks to be a big game once again. Are you confident at all? I think we can get a draw. I I, I don't think... Obviously, I think we've got the players to win. I think it's at any any game like this, it's a a tough ask to go to your biggest opponents, you know, one of the easily top three best teams in Europe, if not the best go there and win. That would take an exceptional performance and you need not only an exceptional performance from yourself, but you probably need City's key players to have bad games as well. There's a lot of factors that come together for that. If you offered me a point now, I would snatch your hand off because I think in the grand scheme of things, the way they're playing to take a point away um, against the team top of the league is is definitely a result. So I'd snatch your hand off for a point if you offered me that at this stage. Um, looking back at the last five games, we do actually have the edge. We have won the last uh, of the last five. Um, we have won the last, or we, we've won three out of the last uh, three out of lost, the five. Lost the last but two. we've lost the last yeah. two. Yeah. So, um, but before that, we've won three in a row. Um, for me, I mean, I just picked out a couple of little points. I thought in terms of key battles. So I've gone for the top one's got to be the main man Harland against Van Dyke. Van Dyke is back to his impervious best. And I was reading some in-depth stats on him um, when I was down the hospital for fucking six hours of wasting my life away. But um, he is back. He's the only centre-back in the league that hasn't been dribbled past this season. Uh, That goes back to that incredible season uh, when we won the league um, three or four years ago now, um, where he wasn't dribbled past in in the whole season and I think the run actually went on for 51 matches, Premier League games, before he was dribbled past. But he hasn't been dribbled past this season. Uh, his number of aerial clearances is up by an average of three per game. His long-range passing is 20% better. He is looking back to the, the Virgil when he was quite clearly the world's best centre-back. So if anyone can possibly handle Haaland, it's Virgil for me. Um, and that absolutely, how whoever comes out on that head-to-head, that's going to have a incredibly significant impact on the outcome of the game. Yeah, um, and it, it depends entirely if Harlan actually plays because he picked up a little bit of a knock in the international break, which which fingers crossed he doesn't, and that would definitely help <laughs> our chances. But um, I've gone on the basis that 
they say he was okay. And whether that's Pep a bit of mind games, getting us worried, maybe he's half fit enough for the bench, who knows? But obviously for me, it would be absolutely delightful if he doesn't play. But if he does, if he's fit, he's going to play, isn't he? I'll be honest. I think that isn't the key battle. And the reason that I say that and it just continues to go under the radar. And we mentioned him at the start of the season. And I made it clear that I thought it was a fantastic signing for City. And he's getting a little bit of props, but not enough. Jeremy Doku, he is the one to watch because he's so explosive and he's so impressive for me. And he's been impressive since he joined City in the summer. And I think he will absolutely run your fullbacks ragged. It obviously depends which wing he puts him on. But... Well, I'm going to... It's funny you say that because in the points that I've made, the only person I've put that if there was one person I would fancy on current form that would break that stat and dribble past Virgil if they end up one-on-one is Doku, the way it's playing. I absolutely think Doku would have him um, and and, and get past him. Um, I think Doku has switched as as City like to do. I mean, let's be honest, there's no joking around. If you're a pep, you're 100% playing him on the left side because you're putting him up against Trent, aren't you? It's yeah. not even a remote thought of any other reason than put someone as tricky and good with the ball at his feet than him than against Trent. It wouldn't surprise me, if I'm being honest with you on this one, and I could actually see this, if he doesn't play Gomez right back and, and put Trent, Trent in, midfield. in midfield. Purely yeah, that's because that's what I think he knows Pep will do. And he will get absolutely overloaded. So the sensible thing there is to play the far more defensive Gomez at right back. If, again, we're going away, like I, I wouldn't be a get so positive for more defensive tactic if you're at home. But again, you've got to set your team up accordingly to play what you've got to play in the atmosphere that you've got to play it. Gomez is a sensible option at right back for me. Well, I've got some stats which hopefully are going to make you a little bit more optimistic about Saturday. So you're winless in three away at this moment in time. Uh, you've drawn two and lost one. Um, City have won their last 23 home games across all competitions, which is obviously not worrying at all. In all seriousness, no. Um, Liverpool are one of just two teams that Haaland hasn't scored against in the Premier League. Can you name the other one? No. <laughs> That pause for that. Uh, the other one's Brentford, weirdly enough. Um, and Salah has scored seven goals in his last 12 Premier League appearances against City. So he's definitely the man to look towards. Um, there's been just two clean sheets in the last 10 games from what I can see between uh, yourself and City. I get that. They're feeling... usually pretty good games. They, to be yeah. fair, I get, you, they, they often do, you know, you get the occasional one that's not so good, but they do often live up to the billing of, you know, not last year because of the blip, but for the three or four years before that, we were the two best teams and we they would duke it out. You, I think there's a 3-4 in there. There's a th- couple of 3-2s. You know, you, you you tend to get a pretty decent game with, with goals when these play. Um, in terms of that, that you just mentioned Salah, I've picked him out. I mean, I think I'm a bit confused with City at the way they've been playing the few games I have seen, but have they not been playing a Kanji at left-back or Nathan Ake? Uh, um, is Ake injured or is he on his way back now? But I think that's what they were doing at the start of the season, wasn't it? They weren't playing with a, a, a recognised, in inverted commas, left back, you know, 
um, that I'm sure they were playing between those two. So that would put them up against Salah. And Salah, in terms of players in the Premier League, bang on form at the moment, he is absolutely in it. And, um, you know, whoever that, that, that could be a big battle because obviously both of them realistically are centre-backs playing out left. You know, they're not, they're quick, but they're not the most of mobile and if you're putting someone against Salah again, for me, I would. That's where that's the channel Liverpool want to be looking to play it through. But equally, we've got Diaz back. He's not quite been himself, and you completely understand that all the horrendous uh, personal problems he's been through. But equally, for me, we can get at their two fullbacks. Diaz can get at Walker if he plays, and certainly Salah can get at whoever plays at left back. Yeah, agreed. It's normally a high-scoring affair, in all honesty. Um, which is why very rarely there's any clean sheets involved. I get the feeling, and you're not going to like it, I think it'll be 2-1 City. I, I just, the stats and everything that goes with it, City, whereas they might say that they've had a bit of a blip with the Chelsea game, I think Chelsea were just really good on that day and you know Chelsea might develop into a force over the course of the season. I, I just don't think that you've got enough to take... Uh, certainly a win. I can see a draw. I just too think all. City's home form is is just too, too good for me. Too old for me. But too old will be a fantastic result for you because I, I say I take that yeah. all day, every day. Um, but yeah, too old for me. I, I don't I agree with you. I'm not sure unless certain things go our way, um, we can win. But I would definitely take a point, and I could see it being too old personally. Fingers crossed for a good five four or four four or something like that because the recent games in the Premier League have been absolutely outstanding and uh, hopefully that, that keeps it up. Minimal of boxing this week again. Um one big main event which I am absolutely looking forward to and it's happening in Dublin on Saturday night. So obviously we'll we'll tune into the the big game at the top of the Premier League and then as the night comes along get some beers in and get on with watching Katie Taylor versus Chantel Cameron 2. Now, in the first one, uh, in Dublin again, that is, sorry, uh, in the first one, undisputed super lightweight titles were on the line. Cameron absolutely dominated Katie Taylor, and we know how good Katie Taylor is. It's very, very commonly known how good Katie Taylor is, but Chantel Cameron just looked all wrong for her. She completely had a number throughout the entire fight, um, I, I can't see anything happening other than a repeat. And I'll be honest, I'm slightly worried that I can see Katie Taylor retiring this weekend. Um, she's been obviously an absolute pioneer of the sport. She's done so much women's boxing. Her legacy is untouchable. She's got a rightful place in the Hall of Fame. But as we see time and time again in boxing, she's coming up against someone who, for me, just simply has a number. I think it's similar to AJ and, and Usyk in that you could have this fight you know, a hundred times and 99 times out of those hundred, Katie Taylor is going to lose to Chantel Cameron. Um, you know, Chantel Cameron is an absolutely incredible boxer. She goes from strength to strength and she was an undisputed champion at 104 pounds for a reason. Um, control the first fight, will control this second fight. My only worry is that it's in Dublin. Is she going to get the home crowd, the home advantage? And we know what the judges are like in terms of their scoring and swaying it one way but I just don't see any other outcome on this to be honest I've had a look at it I've had a look at all the stats I'd look at every other way Katie Taylor loses this comfortably 
Yeah, I mean, she was, she's gone, she's gone up in weight, wasn't she? So she was, this, this is a, a weight or two higher than when she had all her, her belts and was dominating. So you, you've got to commend her for that. I mean, obviously one thing we've talked about again before is just due to the nature, sadly, of not there being as many pure numbers, female boxers, that gives you more limited options on fights within weights. So when you get these, bigger stars you know Clarissa Shields for example people like that they tend to have to bounce around a few more of the weight divisions to try and come across someone who's you know any good don't they or that that that, you know is gonna sell a fight so sadly you you don't have as many options but I would agree with you that I think that the size difference was was very obvious in the first fight and unless Katie Taylor has done some serious you know um training in terms of putting muscle on for size and a bit of mass to, for, for that for that for going up then it could very much go exactly the same way as the first fight i don't even think it's necessarily that i think the power difference definitely told but katie taylor has done just about everything in the sport as i say she has put it into the the limelight she's made uh, young women watching this think, you know what, I can do that. She's shown it quite clearly to everyone in the world who had a lot of doubts about women's boxing and the, and the such. But eventually every horse has its day. And I think Katie Taylor is winding down on her career, whereas Chantel Cameron is just improving. She is going to have a long and illustrious career and will continue to do so. The only thing that I would see Katie Taylor not retiring for if she loses this fight would be for a rematch against Amanda Serrano, which I'd, I'd, so I'd watch that. I'd, I'd quite like to see that. It was a close fight when she fought Amanda Serrano in the first one. Uh, Katie Taylor obviously won. But yeah, it, it's it's only going one way for me. And I think we might see a bit of an emotional night. Um, yeah, and I mean, if, if she was to retire, I suppose, um, you know, she's in Dublin. It would be a nice end for her, you know, in the in the home country, there's always that kind of um, emotional shit like that that might work out quite nicely for her. But um, be a shame because I don't think she's that old, is she? I still think she's got some fights left in her. It's just whether they're at the division. There's enough people uh, in, in 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 her divisions or maybe a lower division. But um, I, I don't know if there's any other real challenges that maybe at this stage of her career entice her to want to carry on. It's more that I don't think there's anything left for her to do. She she absolutely dominated the lightweight division. And as soon as, obviously, she stepped up to try and take the, the super lightweight belts, she's been slapped back down, essentially. And I think the same will happen again. And if you can't take any of the titles in the upper division, what are you moving up a division for when you've been so dominant in the, the lower division? And do you really want to stay in a lower division where you've dominated everyone for the last you know, five, six, seven, eight years, whatever it has been. So I, I just get, it, it's the Josh Warrington conundrum. That is the, the same conversation that we'd had recently about Josh Warrington when he was being matched up against Lee Wood. If he'd have won that fight, I can absolutely see why he would continue because it's a big win and he can move forward on from it. However, losing it, you can see that he's probably only got one fight left and that would be the Lee Wood rematch and that would be that. And I think it's very similar to Kate Taylor. If she loses it, I can see her going up against Serrano and then calling it a day. I can also see her calling it a day at the end of this. Yeah, I think, as you say, I I, 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 I can, can't disagree with you on either front. Either is a dis- very distinct possibility. We'll see. We'll see. I'll definitely be tuning in. I'll say we've got quite a, a long 
day of sport on Saturday, so that'll be quite interesting. Certainly after Leeds have started it off on the Friday, smash it in Rotherham, which... Uh, again, you got uh, Friday, you got a tomorrow night we, game, have you? Yeah, we, we start we start the, uh, the end of the international break, which everyone will be watching, obviously, because everyone loves Leeds. It definitely won't go wrong. And Ruta is injured, so Bamford will be starting. What could possibly go wrong on a wet a Friday night? Probably yeah. a penalty yeah. could go wrong. Probably could miss from yeah, the yard yeah. out. There's there's plenty that could go wrong if Bamford's playing. Have you seen his new podcast, by the way, on a completely separate note? I haven't. You told me about it, that he's getting paid by some weird-looking comedian twat to be his mate. Basically, yeah, essentially. essentially it. Um, his latest episode is about how Big Sam told him that he was shit. And if he ever played like he did against Man City for him again, he'd never play again. And I'm like, all oh, right, that's it's really funny that you're coming out saying all this a day or two before a big game for Leeds after international break, in which you're probably going to be starting. Like, I don't want to hear about how shite you were last season. I don't want to see you joking and laughing about it. Get back on and that how, football pitch. Put it and back. How in shit action. have you got to be for Big Sam to say you shit? Exactly. I mean, yeah, Jesus exactly. Christ, like fucking hell. That's that's and to be saying it that like even if he's, I mean, you just wouldn't admit that, would you? There's, no, there's no. no need in a position when Leeds fans are on your back, you're doing bad, to what, what the, the, literally a completely senseless and typical footballer's moronic choice of things to do. You'd never tell anyone that. That might be something you put in your autobiography when you're 50 and you've retired. You don't tell that story about, oh, yeah, Sam, Big Sam, our manager, what, only a few months ago was telling me that I was that dog shit from him who'd been out of the game and taken bungs as England manager telling me if I play that shit again, I'm never going to play for the club. It's hardly a glowing assessment, like, is it? Yeah, and then it, I chuckle. <laughs> Isn't that funny? No, When we did. got relegated, yeah, when all these fans were really upset about us having got back to the Premier League after a 15, 16-year absence, it was really funny having left it in three years because I'm so shit. <laughs> and do you know what makes the people like Ronaldo and uh, Messi really good is that they put those extra hours in. So... How about Bamford, Bamford, instead of spending an hour with your hairy fucking weird mate in a fucking podcast studio, you get down the fucking goal mouth, you set up some fucking top bins in the corner and you start practising some fucking penalties, you cunt. Don't practice penalties because you never take in another one again. That, that's the way to deal with well, that. Just shooting on target from a yard <laughs> out. Do you know, just put some extra hours in. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a very bad optic for him with Leeds fans, if you ask me. you just wait, wouldn't you, until the end... At least a couple of seasons on, I don't mind um, footballers doing this. You know, you've got a side hustle. It's what we're doing, basically. We've got as main jobs. We do this on side. Absolutely not a problem whatsoever. But if you're talking about your job that you're not very good at, that's never a good sign because then surely Leeds are watching that thinking, uh, Pat, uh, you know that podcast that you just done? What What's that about? I just don't understand what the, the positive for him is. Can you, can you imagine though, if it was just like stupid. if it was a different profession? So like that comedian's like, do you know what? I'm going to find a really mediocre accountant and I'm just going to pay him to be my friend and talk to me and his jobs. And he's like, yeah, this week I did a really shit balancing job of the management accounts. So um, I got a telling off from my boss. Like the, the actual idea of just getting a shit person who's shit at their job and paying them to be a friend and tell you about how shit they are at their job just seems moronic. You never guess what happened last week. 
we got done for fraud. <laughs> it's it's a right laugh. I'm going to I prison. Mean, the accountant might be more interesting than Bamford, which is <laughs> well, we went to training for a couple of hours. I came here and spoke to you. I didn't score up front. Any. I missed a penalty. I missed from a yard out, and uh, we're back here again. It's it's yeah, it's ludicrous, and I, I can't. I've no idea why he does it. No idea whatsoever. It just feels like it's one of these where it's going to continue to be the limelight. Even again, I get like the same point you're making the side hustle, but do it like what about whatever the what was the the comedian's gay name? What's the oh, yeah? yeah what's it? So I was going to say, like, the secret... What, what, if it's, what's the guy's name? Is it, like, Joe? Joe and the secret footballer. And each yeah. week he just wears a stupid fucking mask of a different superhero or something, some theme. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Then no one knows. And they could put a voice distorter on him. Bam. Not a problem. And then in a couple of years, it builds up. Big reveal. Who's the fucking secret footballer? Fuck, it's that useless cunt punk Patrick Bamford. <laughs> what a disappointment. But, like, just don't do it as you when you're in the position that he's in at the moment with the Leeds fans and the form he's in. And it's just, it's just, it's just a bad decision, isn't it? Agreed. Agreed. What we can also agree on. And as this episode comes to an end is thank fuck. We don't have an international break for another four months. Jesus Christ. Thank you. Uh, no I more of that. No more of that. Um, anyway, as always, thank you very much for listening. And we'll speak to you next week.